Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. In the spirit of reconciliation, the Swapcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to the elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torrent Strait Islander peoples today. We're talking again about Welcome to the Swapcast Podcast, the world's only podcast dedicated to body swap movies. I'm your host, Paul Mitzi, and with me we have... Brendan Levi. In today's very special episode, we'll be crossing over to Los Angeles, California to interview the prolific cult film director, Rolf Kanifsky. Rolf has a filmography that spans over 30 years and several genres, writing and directing bona fide cult classics, and would be best known to our listeners of the podcast as the writer-director of the 2002 swap comedy classic, Pretty Cool. He has once again dipped into the body swap genre with his upcoming film, I'm With Me. Welcome to the podcast, Rolf. Nice to be here. Hello, everybody. I did not know this existed until a couple days ago. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, most people just assume that there's a body swap podcast out there, but, you know, uh, unless you (laughs) go looking. Um, So let's get started. Um, Rolf, looking through your filmography, it's very hard to pin down, uh, pin you down into one category. Your films range from horror to romances, thrillers to comedies and even erotica. Did you always envision such a varied career when you entered the industry? Well, I've always, I, I fell in love with movies at a very young age. Uh, Abbott and Costello comedies were uh, what sort of got me in at the age of like four years old. Um, so I, my father introduced me to them and I loved the uh, slapstick comedy, but um, I also had a, uh, took a liking to uh, probably still one of the best horror comedies, Abbott and Costello Frankenstein. And that, I think, started my whole love, uh, fear of horror films. So I love blending the genres, and um, but, uh, but all aspects of film I really enjoy. So uh, at the age of like 13, 14, I got my first video camera, and I kind of knew I wanted to be a filmmaker then. So I started doing research and realized that first-time filmmakers usually started with horror films, um, if you look at... Uh, Oliver Stone and Steven Spielberg and Francis Ford Coppola. Mm-hmm. So I started renting every horror film out on videotape to learn the rules and to try to figure out to do it well. And the cliches and the lazy filmmaking, I think, in a lot of the film ripoffs after Halloween and uh, those movies, uh, when I wrote There's Nothing Out There, my first film, which is the T-shirt I'm wearing, um, yeah. <laughs> coming out soon uh, again, um, the, uh, I decided to sort of spoof the genre while doing an homage at the same time and that horror comedy sort of opened the door to my career which still is probably my most well-known movie and then 
but I always liked comedy and I liked musicals and I liked everything else. So, you know, as a, as a filmmaker, you know, you, you don't really have as much control over, you know, your career as you might think, because it's wherever the money comes from and who's looking to do what. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, so there's nothing out there weirdly led to me doing a family film, my family treasure, um, because they liked the sensibility, even though this was totally different film. And then I made the move to California and, uh, that opened the door in a couple of years to um, uh, meeting a French producer named Alain Sharitsky, which led to uh, a relationship with him doing these late night uh, erotic comedies. Yeah. Uh, so, and then, you know, the career goes where it goes. <laughs> so was that like uh, erotic comedy genre, was that something that, you know, you were introduced to it? purely because they asked you to do it or was that like a genre that you already kind of had a a passion for or ha- had an appreciation for okay so the story there was i i was trying to figure out when i moved to california what the niche would be and um there were two things that sort of inspired that there was a tv show on playboy channel called inside out i don't know if you ever heard mm-hmm. of that never it was kind of an erotic twilight zone story but the people who were involved in this show were like Bernard Rose, you know, who did Candyman and Paper House. Sam mm-hmm. Raimi shot one of these things. Tony Randall, who did the Hellraiser 2 movies. It was, there was some, um, Alexander Payne started his career yeah. here before election and all that stuff. So there was a real group of talented people there. And I thought the idea of this sort of sexy sci-fi Twilight Zone was an interesting idea. I, um, around that time, I stumbled upon a comic book called Xenophile. That was an adult comic book, but really funny, uh, done by an artist named Phil Folia, who had done a lot of X-Men stuff and mainstream, but this was sort of his his little offshoot. And mm-hmm. I tried to get the rights to that comic book to do like, to come up and do maybe a, a anthology of sexy sci-fi, because I thought mm-hmm. there was an audience for this sort of erotic, fun, lighthearted, you know, uh, couples type of material. Um, mm-hmm. And I'd also written a comedy that I was inspired by because I met a bunch of people through a filmmaker named Jeff Burr. Um, uh, Ken Hall and Dave Dakota had done a movie called Dr. Alien, which was sort of a teen sex comedy. And I was inspired by that to write a script called Hormones, the movie. And that almost got made many times, but never did. But I, when I met Sharitsky at the American film market, he was about to start two series called Click and Butterscotch, which were based on Milo Manara. Um, I don't know if you heard of him, a very famous, uh, he'd worked with Truffaut and he did all these sort of adult comic books as well, graphic novels. Mm-hmm. And I stumbled upon that through the xenophile world when I was looking at the comic book stores. So I actually knew those comic books and I had done, there's nothing out there. So I gave him that as a sample as well as hormone script. And he wanted to meet me at the end of the market and he offered me to write and direct three or four of these uh, uh, comedies, you know, based on these two, uh, two, two uh, novels. So that's, so I did have an interest and that moved into that. So there you go. <laughs> when I contacted you for this interview, you mentioned that body swaps are an, a reoccurring theme in all your films. Um, what attracts you to this particular film trope? Um, and what uh, were you, was your first kind of foray into that genre? I guess it starts with sort of mind control. So mm-hmm. there's nothing out there. The creature at one point shoots lasers out of its eyes and sort of uh, brainwashes some of the characters in the film, the women, and they are controlled by the creature. 
um, which I thought was kind of fun because then people are acting differently and uh, things like that. So that was kind of the start. When I moved into the Click and Butterscotch movies, I, I don't know if you know this, but okay, so the Click was about a remote control that could uh, uh, sexually turn people on. Um, that yeah. was the gimmick of the comic book. And uh, we wanted to make it for couples so it would work on men and women versus just the one woman from the original uh, story. Mm-hmm. Now, so the way it goes, though, is Saritsky, who had who was famous for the Emmanuel movies, and he had done a series called Emmanuel in Space. Mm-hmm. He had started this thing. So he was doing, you know, late night um, uh, cable movies, HBO, Skinamax, Cinemax. And um, these were movies shot in six days on film, you know, but 90 minute movies with simulated, you know, love scenes. And you had to have three every 30 minutes. So that was the, the, the rules of the genre. So 27 minutes of simulated sex with a story that works around that. But in order to not be at the mercy of actresses, he had come up with a gimmick that he said, if you're dealing with science fiction or fantasy, what you can do is you can hit the button on the remote or whatever and turn them into somebody else. So if an actress is asking for too much money or doesn't or refuses to do the nudity, you can still tell your story and just zap her into another person. So that's how it sort of in a business side came about was how we could basically, you know, so the remote can also transform people. And then I did it with body parts too, with boobs growing and all this other stuff to make it just, you know, (laughs) crazy. Um, So that was kind of how it started with the body swapping thing. And then that grew into, and then I started doing other movies and that theme. Well, I did a movie called Jacqueline Hyde. I don't know mm-hmm. if you saw that one. It's a female take on Jekyll and Hyde. And in mm-hmm. my thing, it's it's rather than turning into a monster, she turns into anybody. She has a portion that she can transform into other people, anybody she mm-hmm. wants to. And then her alter ego is beautiful, but sort of evil on the inside that she gets corrupted by the power. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a, you know, a different take on the, on the classic tale. Yeah. Um, with pretty cool. That's another whole story. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Do you know much about the history of pretty cool? Well, that was going to be one of my next questions because, okay. like, in researching it, there seems to be a bit of like conflicting information about what Pretty Cool originally was. I've heard some people say it was uh, supposed to be an Emmanuel sequel, and I've heard some people say there's actually multiple edits of the film as well, where with more explicit sex scenes in it for a more adult market. Right. Um, so, and I think it's named Emmanuel Pie in some regions. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, could you kind of give okay, us a history so, of, of that? Right. Okay. So the so pretty cool started. So Sarisky had done uh, the Click and Butterscotch. Then he did a series called Sex Files, and uh, I did one in that one called Alien Files or Alien Erotica. Different cuts of that movie, and that had a species kind of thing, and and it's a shape shifting creature that can turn into other people as well. So there's a bit of transformations in that one um yeah and then he wanted to do another emmanuel series and it was because of the year emmanuel 2000 yeah and uh emmanuel 2000 basically he came to me and he said i want to do an erotic version of being john malkovich <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah i don't know if you do that or not that, but, that um, film is uh, yeah number one on our list of uh that's it that was the start so so he came to me and he's like i want to do you know because he saw that and he saw the potential of like entering another person's mind just rather than john malkovich and you can enter anybody's mind i said okay well 
let me think about it. So I, I decided, well, the first thing is let's make it mobile because you don't want to be locked into having to go to the same place or the doorway to go into the mine. So I came up with the idea of the headband and the necklace. So someone who's wearing the, the headband can enter who's everywhere in the necklace as the yeah. gimmick. Now, I wasn't going to have anything to do with this series because I had already done enough of these things. And I started doing other movies like Tomorrow by Midnight, which is mm-hmm. my favorite film. It's was released in Australia under a different title, I think, but it hasn't come out ever in America. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a film about four kids that take a video store hostage, sort of a black comedy horror, uh, thriller. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I really didn't want to do uh, another erotic series, but I was willing to to develop it and write the Bible for the show and um, and write a script for him. So as that happened and he liked the idea and I, and I set it up for Emmanuel 2000, he then said he wanted it because American Pie had just come out and had done really well that he wanted to do a, a team, you know, an, a, a, a manual pie, technically. That was the name. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, well, I wasn't really interested in doing that, but I had been trying to do hormones and a teen comedy for like six, seven years because I felt the genre after, you know, you had all the ones in the 80s with Porky's and Risky Business and, you know, uh, you know those fun things, weird science, but they all turned into these kind of PG Jennifer Love Hewitt movies. And I said, don't people want to see these sort of fun, raunchy comedies anymore? Now, the internet is what changed that a little bit. But I still felt there was an audience for that, but I couldn't get it off the ground. And then American Pie came out and did gangbusters and showed, yes, people still do want these kind of comedies. So because that had now been successful, now they were like willing to do one again. And somebody wrote a synopsis that was terrible for this idea. And I said, look, I can write one of these in my sleep probably. So (laughs) I wrote him a script called, I think it was originally called Summer Fever. Yeah. And it had elements of pretty cool in it that turned into pretty cool, but it was designed as a late night erotic series. I mean, erotic movie. And uh, there was in jokes on American Beauty and a few other things in there. And Saritsky really liked the script so much. He thought it was really funny that he really wanted me to direct it. And I was like, well, I don't really want to do this, but I do want to do like an R-rated teen comedy. So what if we do two versions of it? And if I I got my casting director and I could shoot on 35 millimeter, I would do it. So he said yes. And then I tried to basically figure out how to turn that script into pretty cool. But it was, was, I almost gave up because it was impossible until I came up with the hook of a guy wanting to be Tom Cruise. And I picked the right guy because Tom Cruise, I think, is the only actor who's been top of his game from risky business in the eighties till now with Academy award nominated yeah. motion picture. So yeah, I mean, everyone yeah. still knows time. Mean, no one's had the career. I mean, even, you know, superstars have come and gone, but Cruise somehow weird. So yeah. that gimmick was kind of, okay, I can use that and make fun of the Tom Cruise movies. And that gave me the hook for the movie. And I rewrote most of the script uh, doing a, 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 a teen comedy body swapping thing and all that with the mm-hmm. elements of the band of the necklace, but disguised <laughs> enough that it could stand alone as its own movie. However, we ran into some issues and almost at the last minute, well, the, okay. So I realized the only way I could pull off the film because these movies were all being shot in six days. Yeah. And you can't do a good, really, you can't do a good movie in six days. Very, very hard. So and you're um, going to do two in six days. Yeah. So when I, I said <laughs> the other script I wrote, which was Emmanuel Intimate Encounters. I said, if I direct those two films, 
back to back. I can kind of steal days from the other movie, do that one a little bit quicker, move them into pretty cool. So I wound up doing two, two and a half movies because there's two different versions of pretty cool, Emmanuel Pye and pretty cool. And there, there's a lot of differences between those movies, the same story, but one has, you know, 30 more minutes of sexuality and uh, different scenes. And it was like a jigsaw puzzle. And with the script was huge. And I wound up directing both of these things at the same time, along with Emmanuel Intimate Encounters. Um, <laughs> never, never want to do that again. But uh, that was kind of yeah how it all came together, and I and I agreed to do the movie, and and I was pretty happy how it turned out. And then we had a lot of trouble selling the film and getting the film released because Saritsky could sell his erotic films, but he didn't know how to sell an R-rated teen comedy. And I said, if you release. Emmanuel Pye, you're going to kill pretty cool. So he did agree, and, and Emmanuel Pye was never released in the States, never came out, but for his international buyers, he finished that version of the film. So basically, he never really put the money up to finish pretty cool. I did it with my father, who who ran a post-production company. He's an editor in New York City, so we were able to actually finish pretty cool, deferred uh, just to get the film done, because after all this work, I thought it would be really nice to, you know, and it was good. And, and uh, you know, people really seemed to like it, but it never really, it sat on a shelf for about five years before it finally got released um, through MTI in the States, because they had released a movie of mine called The Hazing, which has some possession in that movie, too, if you saw that comedy horror film with Brad Dorf. Um, and they like Pretty Cool, so they released the film, and, and the film did surprisingly very well um uh despite you know all the other versions and things like that so it's a it's a strange animal <laughs> so can you kind of talk us through the differences between emmanuel pie and pretty cool like what how different are the two movies well they're two completely different cuts um the editors who did i, I was there a little bit but the editors who did emmanuel pie um, used really different takes on everything. So if you see, you know, it's like some of the scenes are the same, but they're all cut differently. They're different performances. They're different takes they used. Mm -hmm. um, the structure of the movie, well, okay, so, oh, so, okay, in Pretty Cool, the teacher who shows up tracking down the experiment, the, uh, you know. Miss Perkins. Miss Perkins. Yeah. That's Emmanuel in the series. Mm -hmm. So, we in, so in the Emmanuel version, we introduce okay. So in the beginning of the movie, uh, the film begins with the um, instead of the dream sequence, it really begins with the experiment that's going on with the doctors. See, the two doctors that are downloading the experiment, those are the doctors, Shauna O'Brien and 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 uh, Lyle, I think is the actor's name, are doing the experiment. So the signal gets loose, and there's this sort of uh, montage of stock footage from all different erotic films where everyone gets zapped and gets turned on and there's all these sex going on. So it starts with a big, you know, three minute sex montage <laughs> before, you know, um, it, it winds up going to Howard in the school. So she's introduced getting out of bed of the movie I directed before. So it really does continue from Emmanuel intimate encounters because it ends with her in the bedroom with a guy that she makes love to. And uh, she gets a signal and she gets out of bed, walks over and she has a new mission to go to the school. So it kind of, it structures her as Emmanuel. That's why we never call her Emmanuel in pretty cool. You know, mm -hmm. we call her Miss Perkins, which is a made up name. Um, <laughs> then the Howard story is pretty much the same. We, we didn't do the animated title sequence. We got rid of that. 
Um, a lot of the jokes are gone because we just focus more on the sexuality, but he still meets Tiffany. Um, he still goes to the school. He gets the detention. Then the changes are in the, 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 the lovemaking. So the first erotic sequence in pretty cool is when the, the janitor, Robert Donovan, uh, comes in and she's been zapped and they have sex on the, on the table. So in the erotic version, it's much more explicit. There's a lot of nudity in that. I don't think you really see any nudity in pretty cool with that. She keeps her bra on um, yeah. while the uh, graduation's going on. Then in the, uh, then Howard goes home, the scene where he fantasizes about being in the two girls in the jacuzzi. So, okay. So originally in pretty cool was the farting scene. Yeah. And I replaced the farting scene with this, the fantasy of him having the sex scene with the two girls in the jacuzzi. That yeah. scene was so funny though, with the now bit that we decided to put a, a small version of that in pretty cool mm -hmm. as well because it was funny and the girls, you know, did a fun fake orgasm and that becomes mm -hmm. a theme. So, but in the, in the erotic version, it's a much longer scene, um, more nudity of, of course. And uh, Miss Perkins, Emmanuel sort of taps in, in an empty classroom while that's happening. And she sort of fondles herself. Um, mm -hmm. So there's, there's a, it's a, it's a sexy scene, but it's, it's much yeah. more that. but every, basically every setup of a, of a, an erotic scene, there's, I guess there's more, but there, there were there were for Emmanuel Pye nine erotic sequences mm -hmm. in the movie. Um, the most ridiculous one is when uh, the the older sister uh, Amy Brissett transforms mm -hmm. into the cat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, Chuck is looking for her, and he looks over the wall at one point, and there's a girl naked jumping into a swimming pool, and he says, "Wrong pussy cat." And then <laughs> we intercut them fighting around looking for the cat with the sex scene in the water. That was from another. Uh, I was. I think it was actually a scene from another movie that Fernal and Ray directed that we just inserted into that because <laughs> Amy Brissett. Well, this was okay. So here was the big, the big, the big issue was the movie is that in order to do pretty cool, one of my things was is we have to hire um, a casting director who I worked with on on Tomorrow by Midnight, and he had done some of the earlier shows named Jerry Whitworth, mm -hmm. and he knew actors and could find me a cast. Whereas the guy who was casting the Emmanuel series who also manages a lot of these actresses and actors was never going to find the teenagers I needed to play the role. So mm -hmm. I, I said, I need Jerry to cast my movie because I need to find actors, not just, you know, softcore adult people with tattoos all over the place who will mm -hmm. never, you know, the movie will never work. So we did a week of casting and we did find, I thought an incredible cast of up and coming actors. And a lot of them did go on and had really successful careers. We can get into that later. Mm -hmm. um, but the trick was these actors wouldn't, wouldn't do a late night erotic Emmanuel movie. They would mm -hmm. do an American pie movie, but they didn't want to be in a sex film necessarily. So it was a very delicate balance where I knew the producers for the Emmanuel pie version wanted something that was late night cable. But at the same time, you know, the, these actors, so I, I was on the fence the entire time, like saying how far, you know, I, so I gave so first the actors were given the script with just this the 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 the, the pretty cool version. Then they were mm -hmm. given the script with their erotic scenes in it, so they 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 weren't over over you know overloaded with sexuality. Then they got the full script, knowing kind of what it is. And I said, "It's look, it's not going to be." And it wasn't. It wasn't with with those actors. It wasn't. They didn't have anything too explicit, more so than what unrated American Pie movies were doing necessarily. You know, where some of the other actors like mm -hmm. okay, so the the scene in the locker room with the girls in the locker room scene. Yeah. All yeah. of those girls 
were like late night cable actresses. So they have a whole, yeah, when, when Chuck goes invisible, there's a whole very funny scene where he's kind of touching the girls and they're getting to this sort of female orgy where they can't see him. And then, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, perfect fantasy. You know, just, <laughs> as I said, it's kind of like, you know, uh, in a weird way, if, you know, if Fast Times Richmond High, if, you know, that movie mm-hmm. existed and, and uh, you know, Phoebe Cates, instead of just taking off her top, had like a three minute love scene with uh, Judd Reinhold in his fantasy. You know, yeah. <laughs> I said, look, if the movie became that, people would be like this, 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 we got to see the unrated version. This is amazing. You know, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, so it was constantly that balance, but, just before the shoot, um, one actor who was going to play Chuck felt that it wasn't that he, he got scared of the script and he said, it's a porno. I'm not doing a porno. And he quit the project. And I was really afraid that the whole actor, but we were going to lose everybody. And if we did, I wasn't going to direct the movie. And I had just done the other version, the, the Emmanuel Intimate Encounters. So I was it was very upsetting. I, I begged Alon, the producer, to just scrap the erotic version of because we have such a good cast. It's a mm-hmm. fun movie. This really is a good commercial film. But he said no. He wouldn't do it. And that weekend, he, there was there was they, there was a chance that you know actually Fredo and Ray might have come in and directed the movie. I would have quit, and they would have just cast a whole bunch of late night cable actors and done whatever version of it. It would have been terrible. Mm-hmm. But luckily, the rest of the cast all felt they they liked the script. They didn't have the problem with it. And they felt that actor was a little weird himself. So they stayed with the project. So we recast uh, Chuck. We found uh, Gerald uh, Gerard, who was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And um, somehow was able to pull up. It was weird because it was on the heels of the series. And it was the same crew. But the tone of the whole movie changed when we started doing Pretty Cool. Because now it was a comedy. Yes, there was some sexuality. But everyone felt like, wait a minute. This isn't a late night cable movie. This this feels different. And the actors were so good. They were competing with each other about being funny. And they were coming to days that they weren't on the set to see the other actors doing the slapstick stuff. Like the whole scene with um, uh, the opening with uh, the, the wind. My, yeah. my kind of homage to Whiskey yeah. Business yeah. coupled with uh, you know Buster Keaton. You know, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> my type of, you know, the I mean, the, the pool table scene is, you know, you know, uh, it, it, it's a uh, color of money meets uh uh, shot in the dark, you know, Pink Panther, Peter yeah. Sellers, you know, I mean, I, I yeah. was, you know, um, uh, but yeah, like that sequence, th- there's, yeah, the, that has a weird thing. So in, in, in the original Pretty Cool, that was going to happen later in the movie. That was the second dream sequence. And we shot uh, Alexis Thorpe, who played Tiffany in bed, dreaming of, uh, you know, making out with Howard in the wind. There was no nudity in mm-hmm. the wind scene, but they were making out more in their underwear. And she's sort of like in her underwear, rolling around in the bed um, with a teddy bear in her arms. And then it was intercut with Holly Sampson, who plays Miss Perkins, who's also Emmanuel, feeling that dream. And then she's kind of naked in her apartment and it all intercuts together. So then sexual, the nudity comes from Holly, who, who was on the teetering of being an adult actor. I don't know if you looked into her, but Holly Sampson went yeah. and became an adult film star. Um, and that, so it, that's how we were kind of like crisscrossing. How do you get the sexuality, the sex in there without destroying the comedy, without destroying the, mm-hmm. so I, I was, you know, on the fence, pin, pins and needles the entire shoot, but we got through it. It turned out really well. And then again, like I said, Sarisky wanted to finish Emmanuel Pie for his pre-sales and foreign buyers. And then I, we just finished Pretty Cool ourselves. And then I fought for years to get the film out there and, and finally did. And, you know, so those are, those are some of the differences of scenes. There's, um, 
Oh, the scene with uh, um, the bully Mitch uh, in the classroom. Mm-hmm. That yeah, remember that yeah. when he yeah, gets, gets aroused in the classroom. Yeah, there's yeah. a whole fantasy scene in that where he gets into his mind and he makes love with uh, Miss Perkins on the uh, desk with candles burning everywhere. So it's a uh, that turns into a sex scene as well. Um, so was he then, was he a more of a no, light? No, he was not. Action? He he did. He 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 went down to you know being naked. We don't okay. So softcore, you never see full frontal male nudity. You know, yeah. uh, the, the rule is guys wore socks and women wore patches. You know, it's all simulated. So even though people don't know, it's, it's simulated. So he was on the bottom the whole time. You saw his butt quickly, but that was it. So he was nervous. He had never done it before. She, she was comfortable. She was fine. She was in control of the scene. But he was willing to do that scene. That was his one thing. And that was just like any fantasy you've seen in, you know, R-rated. It was, there was nothing yeah. too explicit in that sequence. Then there was another weird scene with uh, Howard. Okay, when he goes over to Miss Perkins' apartment and is um, uh, he falls asleep and he starts to dream and she says, what are you dreaming about? Oh, Howard. And she sort of sinks down on the ground. There's mm-hmm. kind of a weird fantasy. We see their dream, which is inside an aquarium with lots of jellyfish swimming around and they make love. And that's that's a real romantic love scene that you, know, you there's, see some nudity, but that was a you know, nice score music there. So that was another one that was thrown in. It was really trying to figure out how to place all these scenes that would fit into the movie, but then you could take them out of the movie and still have a comedy and not realize there's another version of the film. It's Jigsaw Puzzle. You know, it's, uh, I don't yeah, recommend it yeah. for people, but it, it, it was, the movie does work both ways. Although I think Pretty Cool is much funnier, obviously. And I go with that. Oh, and the scene, of course, with um, Cecilia Burquest, who plays um, the uh, the secretary, you know, the... Um, yeah at the school when yeah. she goes into the woman's back. Okay. So when Chuck enters her body, hopefully yeah. your viewers know the movie because I'm sure they're yeah. completely confused. As hell, but we're not really telling the story of the movie. We should tell the story of the movie. But when Chuck enters her body and she goes into the bathroom. Um, so I had the bit where she shows herself. Then I did. Think she's of, licking it her own script, boob. But that was, yeah, I, 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 I thought of it in the car driving. I said, it would be hysterical if, if she's trying to lick her own uh, boob. And he's, you know, him. Because the guy, that's, of course, what you know. She was up yeah. for it. He said she would do it. Um, that, that day, I remember very clearly because it was very funny because all of the, the female crew and cast were, were talking if they could or couldn't do it. Uh, some can and some can't. Uh, so that was an interesting conversation that day. Um, uh, Cecilia actually could, but she, she, I told her she shouldn't reach because it's funnier that way if she's struggling. Um, anyway, so... Instead of that gag in in the pretty in the Emmanuel Pie version, she goes into the um, the bathroom stall and she has and she's by herself pulling off her clothes and kind of playing with herself much more while they're playing pool outside. So <laughs> it's a very funny scene, but more nudity, longer, you know, it's sort of a. And then she kicks open the the bathroom door by accident, and there's the a female biker. You see the female biker chick at the bar that one point she winks at her. Mm-hmm. She's there. And uh, and as she starts to go into the stall to like make out with her, I cut I cut away. So I don't have a scene between them, but we did do them. Um, funny story about that is that actress I don't remember her name, but she did like said, "Can I? Do you need a hand?" And she says, "Sure." And then she pops her top as she walks towards camera. Um, I cut that out because unfortunately that actress had had a boob job that was so terrible that I just said we can't show that. <laughs> you know, so so I got rid of the nudity on that one. Um, uh, it happens, you know. Uh, so, um, <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, just—it's a fascinating way of making a 
film? Like how many films would really be made in this way that they are intending while they're shooting to have two completely different edits of the final product? Like it's got to be a rarity in Hollywood, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah, well, they, yeah, I think so. Well, I mean, there's there's been alternate versions and people do do sequences. I mean, you've seen plenty of deleted stuff and, and uh, you know, oh, they shoot things a little more explicitly. The, the thing I didn't realize at the time was um, I'd worked for Sarisky for a while at that point, and I actually wrote a script called Faking It. And the gimmick of that script was kind of a behind the scenes of the softcore world because, you know, no one's really done that. They've done Boogie Nights and the hardcore, you know, people know pornography, but they don't realize the, all, the simulated stuff. And, and the behind the scenes of making these movies sometimes are hysterical. I mean, I... I <laughs> I don't know if you saw the uh, the Invisible Man movies I did, the uh, Erotic Adventures of Invisible Man. Yeah, I saw the trailers, but I haven't, I haven't okay. been able to actually get a hold of a copy to watch. Well, okay. So in that movie, uh, you know, the comic book, okay, so they're based on a comic book called, called Butterscotch. And in the comic book, it's an Invisible Man. When we were doing the movies, they most of the filmmakers, because there's like different filmmakers making, it was seven movies being made, like a series. Um, uh, they did, they had the, uh, the Invisible Man wrapped up in bandages, but I said, no, people want to see the comic book, which is, you know, an Invisible Man making love to a woman. So we did it, rig the beds and all the actresses. And I came up with air hoses to push the skin in, to make it look like, you know, ghostly, like the entity. And then we also said, you know, in order to do it well with the actresses, we should hire a mime to work with the, with the girls. And there's like, well, if you find an open-minded mind, and we found a girl, she's in the movie, <laughs> but she actually rehearsed with the actresses of how to do like invisible oral sex. And <laughs> I mean, watching a, a female mind working with an actress, showing how to simulate <laughs> that with the actress standing there who's playing the invisible man, who's like saying, "Well, you're being very generous because getting the right." <laughs> I just said, "This is this is insanity." So. Uh, that's why I said these movies were so fun and lighthearted and silly that, um, you know, I, I, I'm considering actually trying to produce a documentary about the world of these movies because uh, I think it would be really fun. And and rather than showing the dark, you know, ugly side, usually whenever they do documentaries about pornography, you get into the drugs and all that stuff. These movies were just a lark. And uh, so many of them I did. And Pretty Cool broke out as a, as a teen comedy and I was happy that it got released as its own movie. Um, what was not so happy was that um, just as the film was coming out, somebody had put the credits of Emmanuel Pye on the IMBD, and suddenly the, that version was listed as well. And the actors got some of them got very upset because suddenly they had an Emmanuel credit on their resumes, and they're like, "What is this? I had no control over it because that was the international title, mm-hmm. but it never came out here." But they heard about it, and they so they wouldn't publicize the movie. They 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 got uh, they felt they were tricked, and uh, it was. Um, I felt really bad about it, um, but they were really happy with pretty cool. It's just, it's a shame yeah. that the other version existed, you know? Mm. I mean, in the end of the day, it hasn't, you know, Will Burke, who played the main character has written for Obama. So, you know, yeah. it couldn't have affected him that badly. So. No, well, he, <laughs> he went up for a Disney project at the time when he was an actor and, and, and he's the one who called me and saying, what is this Emmanuel Pine? I said, that's the international title. And he's like, can you get rid of it? I'm like, I can't, they, I have no control over it. And the IMBD is, you know, it's very hard and, and it does exist as a movie. So he got upset. Amy Brissett got upset. Uh, the, uh, Alex Thorpe got upset. <laughs> yeah, it was like, 
I was, yeah, and I, and I don't blame them. It was unfortunate, but, um, I, I, but I said, it's not out here. I'm like, yeah, on the internet, you can try to find, download the version, but at least in the States, I kept it away. It never came out. Still to this day, that version doesn't exist here. It's only pretty cool. And, yeah. um, as I say, for a comedy movie, that's the one I would recommend seeing. But of course, <laughs> if you've seen it for sexuality and nudity, you know, it's definitely, <laughs> you want to see some of the other stuff there. Although like Alexis Thorpe, does not do any nudity in both versions of the film. Um, mm-hmm. no, nobody in uh, Pretty Cool, uh, none of the main actors in Pretty Cool really, I think, have any nudity they, they don't have in, I mean, the, the show, I mean, like even Will Burke, you never really see, he has one love scene in that fantasy, but you never really see anything just as, you don't even see his butt in that movie. Um, Gerard shows his butt anyway for a second, and that's about mm-hmm. it. He wasn't in a love scene. Um, so most of them didn't do anything explicit or like, you know, controversial. Uh, so Amy Brazette, who played Paula um, Howard's sister, has some pretty iconic scenes, uh, impersonations of other celebrities. Was that always part of the script or was that something you realised she could do and add it in while you were shooting? Yeah, I, I, she, that was realised. I'd written the script <clears throat> and Howard's sister was there and, and I had the cat bit and stuff, but Amy came into it. So Amy had just, I think, come in from Louisiana. She was like two weeks in L.A. This was her first audition. You know, when we when we asked her, she got her sides, which are the audition side, you know, the pages. You know, she had no idea what sides were. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. But she had a tape. She had a VHS tape because this was um, uh, 19, uh, I mean, uh, 2000. This was, yeah, 2000. And um, I watched the tape. The quality of the tape was terrible. It was bad VHS. But in on the tape was about a half hour tape of her doing like 23 different characters. And I realized this girl is brilliant. I'm like, she is, it was like Tracy Ullman, uh, female Peter Sellers. I mean, she just, and she became these people. She was like totally these characters with just um, uh, uh, lipstick and uh, some wigs. She transformed herself entirely into these. And it was all these little different routines that she had come up with. And I, so she was the first person cast in the movie. I, I saw the tape and I told the producer, I said, we have to cast this actress right now. I think she was 19 or she just turned 20. And um, I called her up and I was like, I, I, I want to I make you a star. And, uh, you know, I want to incorporate your routines in there. I want to work them in because you, and the thing is you find good comedians, you, you, you kind of let them loose. If you're smart, you let them, you let them do their thing. And this movie was so open-ended anyway i'm like you can the magical element let anything go so we discussed the the characters which one she would do she did a reba mcintyre she had done this uh the, the the grandmother voice and all that stuff and um it was great uh so we worked all that into the script um letting her kind of go wild with it <laughs> the day we shot the majority where she does all the voices in howard's room when he has to go from one to another i told her I, i'd like to do it in one take if we can just, you know, just shift from one to another, just keep it rolling. And she said she'll do it, but she didn't want the actor to be there. She just wanted the camera so she didn't get distracted. And then I would just, you know, snap my fingers and she would go from one to another. And she wrote, I wrote some ideas. She wrote some ideas. Um, and then she did that take, you know, one full take. It was like five minutes, the full uncut version of it. And that version, that that's what got her signed with William Morris Agency, which got her an umbrella deal with Fox Television for a couple of years. Because that she showed that tape, as I said, this terrible VHS quality. This was thirty-five millimeter, and you saw, oh my God, she's amazing. <laughs> so yeah, she. I mean, I was thinking she got signed with William Morris. Uh, Will Burke got signed with William Morris from the film. 
Uh, Alexis Thorpe wound up getting uh, the Young and the Restless after this movie. Uh, Summer Altus, uh, you know, uh, Wedding Crasher, she's in and a few things. She had done Playboy, but she had. So I mean, the, we, we I mean, we actually found a really talented cast. Nobody became Tom Cruise, but <laughs> you know, they were they were they were they were really good actors, and I think it shows in the movie. And that's I, that's why I think the film was as successful it was for being a, a low budget independent movie with nobody really in it because it did perform amazingly well when it hit home video five years later. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like watching it, rewatching it now, like it still holds up as such a fun movie, I guess, obviously some of the uh, politics behind the film, I think might be a bit different if you released it today in terms of the attitudes towards sex and sexuality, but in terms of like the pacing and the chemistry between the actors, like it's just a really fun movie. Do you, do you think that you do much differently if you were to release um, Pretty Cool today? Not really. The thing about Pretty Cool is, you know, and of course you just got to get the other version out of your head, but in, if you only know Pretty Cool is Pretty Cool, the movie has a real innocence about it. You know, I mean, at the time, I mean, we had the Farley brothers, something about Mary with the sperm and the hair and, and all that <laughs> stuff with, you know, Cameron Diaz. And this movie really, I mean, there's, yes, the, the, uh, the, the girls locker room, but even the girls locker room scene, you know, there's a little bit of nudity, but, but, uh, but uh, Chuck gets the, you know, he's a shit kicked out of him. He gets stepped on. He gets, yeah. a, I mean, he, he, su- the thing is, if you're going to do the, the horn dog thing, they have to suffer for their, you know, the, the, per- the pervert mm-hmm. and, yeah. and the women, <laughs> And the thing too with pretty cool is the women are funny. Most, yeah. almost all, even the American Pie movies is like that. The women don't get to be funny. The guys are funny, but the women are usually just the pretty. You know, put them on the mantle. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. pretty uh, American Pie with Shannon Elizabeth, master. I mean, come on, master. Going to a guy's house and just taking off all her clothes and masturbating on his bed. What, where does that happen? You know, and, yeah. I mean that. In pretty cool, the movie ends with a kiss. You know, with with the two just kissing. There's no. There's no sex scene between the teenagers. The only sex scene is between the two adults, you know, in, on the on the desk of the, uh, you know, um, you know, and, and the principal's office. So when you really look at the movie, there's a very innocent uh, flavor to the film. It's not mean spirited. It's not um, nasty towards women. I, I found talking to women on the movie, women like the film a lot because, you know, Amy's very funny. Uh, Alexis Thorpe mm-hmm. is is cute, but she's she's the girl next door, and she slaps him. I mean, you know, she's like, you know. When she walks in and she thinks it's a threesome, uh, 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 Cecilia loved, I mean, being a guy, a, a girl in a guy's body, you know, a guy in a girl's body playing Chuck with the, with the pool table scene and the slapstick stuff. And, and she's very, very funny. And again, you got one scene of her trying to lick her breast, but in the contents of it, if she was a guy, yes, you of course it's, you know, you know, that's what a guy, the whole thing was, if a guy was a girl, he'd never leave the house. You know, that's, you know, yeah. <laughs> stand in front of a mirror and never leave the house. So, um. Yeah. So I think the the innocence of the movie uh, overrides the, uh, any of the, and there's not in pretty cool that much nudity in the film. It's it's fleeting. We don't dwell on it. You know, mm-hmm. there's enough there for it's in our rating, but um, there's there's no there's no drugs. There's very little language in the movie. There's no violence in the movie. It's all slapstick comical violence. So I, I think it does. You know, that's why I think it holds up. I think it's it's uh, surprisingly innocent. Um, yeah, if you compare it to some of the other teen comedies or the you know, sex comedies of the day, it probably has aged better. Like if you look at something that's saying like Jerry O'Connell's Tomcats, Tomcats, um, I thought exact same thing. Yes, with the yeah, the like that the film. Table. No, everyone yeah. was going for gross out humor. At the time, mm-hmm. 
that's what was the end with the Folly Brothers. It was all like, how gross can we get? Yeah, Freddie got mm-hmm. fingered, and all. I mean, all these things were just going. Even you know, uh, the, the jokes in um, Road Trip are, are a little more mm-hmm. risque and stuff like that too. They they go much farther and stuff. So mm-hmm. it, 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 it's a throwback to kind of the '80s teen comedies where it was a little more like, you know, peeking through the fences, the Porky's idea, you know, stuff like that, without getting um, nasty on it. So I think that's why. Yeah, it, it it doesn't have that crudeness. Instead of the crudeness, I I went back to slapstick comedy. I went back to Buster Keaton and uh, you know Abbott Costello and uh, you know Peter Sellers. That's that's what I enjoy and that's what I was putting in there. The musical number, you know, you always had to have that musical number where, you know, anyway, as the catch, he's fantastic. Amy Brissett does a great job. Yeah, uh, actually, that that was a one scene that stood out to us all when we watched it. The the musical number was that something that was always going to be part of the film yes yes i i love musicals and if you look at all again the 80s all the john hughes all the teen comedies ferris bueller the uh you know they have the, they all break out on the parade the breakfast club has the dance where they all start dancing i mean the, the, yeah this the musical numbers are sort of the state she's all that there's that one mm-hmm. where everyone just sort of starts dancing and yeah. um it, it, they're not called musicals but they're just they they work and and the Blues Brothers is one of my all-time favorite movies. So, um, yes, I, I wanted to get uh, that. So, if, if that, that song, so when we, we we didn't have the song recorded yet, we did write that song for the movie. But when we did the number, it was to uh, give me some loving from the Blues mm-hmm. Brothers. That because the da 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 boom da 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 boom that that's many songs have done that. So I knew we could kind of use that as a template, and then they came up with that. And singing that song is uh, is Amy Brissett. She's the female vocal on that song, as well as uh, the Andersons, who was the other guy. It was uh, Ro- Robbie Rist. It was his band, uh, the Andersons. Uh, if you know Robbie Rist, he played, um, uh, uh, what's his name, from uh, the Brady Bunch cousin. Uh, um, yeah. Not, no. not, no, Brady Bunch, not it. it it's, it's, uh, uh, I yeah. his name. Like, he, was, he was a, kid, a child actor who... You know, with yeah, this blonde kid with the glasses, and he did a whole bunch of stuff at the time. But yeah, so that was kind of fun that because she sang too. I mean, Amy did everything, so she was really amazing. And you know, she had, she almost became a star. She had she just hit some really bad luck. Every timing is everything in this business. Talent mm-hmm. only takes you so far. But she um because she got she got signed. She got she did a, okay. She did a pilot for a uh, for a show that didn't get picked up. And then she got picked. Then she got hired to do Cedric the Entertainer Presents, which was a Fox show. Mm-hmm. It was a variety show, shortly lived. And when she wound up doing that um, on the hiatus, I was about to do a movie called The Hazing, and I thought she would be great to play the role that Tiffany Shepard eventually played. But she didn't come to the audition because she was up for the Johnsons family vacation with Cedric, which mm-hmm. the role wound up going to uh, Shannon Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. So she didn't get it, and then the the pilot of the original show that she uh, done, they redid the pilot, which she couldn't be, and everybody was in it but her because she was doing Cedric. And the show did get picked up, which was Reno 911. Oh, wow. <laughs> so she was she would have been the blonde police officer on Reno 911. She did the pilot, the original pilot. She couldn't do it, so she wasn't on that. And then Cedric got canceled. So the show she was on got canceled. She didn't get the show that took off. She didn't do pretty uh, the hazing because – and she didn't get the other movie, and, and then she kind of – drifted away although she's still pursuing acting and she's living in louisiana and she's you know i, I still i still talk to her i mean we 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 we're, we're still friendly and stuff like that i i, I think she was amazing so. 
So um, it's uh, interesting. This film was kind of uh, the genesis of it was American Pie. That was what what caused the producer to reach out to you. And now years later, you ended up directing Tara Reid in the film Party Bus to Hell. Um, so was that did that feel like a full circle moment? Like how did that come come about? Oh, uh, Tara Reid. Well. Uh... Okay, so the, so I met these producers in in uh, in in Vegas. Um, they they reached out to me on Facebook, and um, they saw Pretty Cool too. Actually, they saw my sequel mm-hmm. to Pretty Cool, um, which is is fun. You know, I, I'm I'm happy. very much much lower budget film than the first one, but has a lot of fun stuff in it. I think, and they thought it was good. And they were doing a um, they wanted to do a teen sex comedy themselves, and they wanted me to write it. So I wound up writing that for them. And then the next film they wanted to do, they realized it's it's hard to sell teen comedies, but horror is bigger. And I was had done a lot of horror at that point, so they had this idea for a movie called uh, uh, Bus Party Party Bus Massacre, I think. And mm-hmm. they wanted it to be a really vicious, nasty, hostile kind of thing on on a bus. I changed the title to Bus Party to Hell and made it a real over the top splatstick comedy. I think you know it's you know mm-hmm. the Sam Raimi you know world of over-the-top insanity. They wanted nudity. They wanted, every, you know. And uh, they were raising the money, and they, they basically raised the money through Indiegogo. Um, and they get investors, and what's happened and became become the unfortunate norm now is what happens is they get, they find an actor or a name actor who, who were willing to do an independent film, and all the people that want to be in a scene with that person, uh, and they cast them, and they get more money because they can act with Tara Reid. She's been a few of their films. And uh, so at the last minute, they raised the money and, and got her for two days to do uh, mm-hmm. Party Bus. She was very nice. Um, you know, I, I worked with her again on uh, Art of the Dead. <clears throat> she's in that one, too. Um, yeah, I like Tara Reid, but, uh, you know, she's she's a she was a party girl. She does like to uh, to, to 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 stay up late and drink a lot and stuff. So <laughs> so in Party Bus, she. Uh, I rearranged things to kind of deal with how she was, what, what she was giving me. I think the scene works really fun with her and Devaney Penn, but yeah, yeah. I, I realized the scene that was written was not going to be the scene that was in the movie. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I made the best of it. And, uh, you know, I did watch the film in preparation for this and it is definitely a fun film. Like uh, the, the humor is first and foremost seems to be the priority in that film. Not so yeah. much the horror. It was a very low budget film. Uh, you know, it was shot in, I think, thirteen days. I mean, it's. I mean, it's. It's all practical effects, practi- You know, all over the place. And as I said, it delivers on the title. If you're going to go see a movie called Party Bus to Hell and Tara Reid, you get Party Bus to Hell with Tara Reid. You know, if you're, yeah. you're looking for The Exorcist, <laughs> don't go watch Party Bus to Hell. <laughs> um, another one of the films that I watched in preparation for this uh, was a Lifetime original uh, that you did, um, Pool Boy Nightmare. Yeah. Um, which I also was like, I've seen a at at work in the lunchroom. There's always a Lifetime movie playing, and they're usually barely watchable. But this was actually so much fun and felt very self aware um, in a way that I don't think a lot of them are. How do you find like working within those constraints of like a Lifetime movie? Because obviously they've got a lot, a lot of censorship, probably a list of things you can't show. Um, do you thrive in that, or do you find that very well, constricting? It's 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 both. If you, 
<clears throat> so all yeah, I mean, okay, with the with the obviously the HBO, the three sex scenes every half hour, there was a formula. Lifetime is similar. Hallmark Lifetime, they have a formula. They know there's a cookie cutter that you have to stay within the box of. But I had wind up, I had written a lot of, I got into writing Lifetime films about now, about probably eight or nine years ago. Um, a filmmaker friend brought me in. He said, you have a female driven thriller. And I had a, I, I had a script and I actually, I swipped, sw- switched the sexes and made it a uh, female driven thriller. And it got made and, and it turned out pretty good. It was shot up in Canada called, um, watch your back or killer photo with Annalyn McCord. Mm-hmm. And uh, that one doesn't follow the rules actually as much and did really, really well. Although it didn't, you would think that something's really successful. They would branch out a little bit more, but they don't, they like more cookie cutter, but I'd been writing, I'd written like seven or eight of these that have been produced over the years, but I hadn't directed one. So uh, when pool boy, I came up with the idea of that. The thing it was a catch 22. You can't direct one unless you've directed one. So um, the Asylum, uh, who I knew for a long time, I never worked with them, but they were doing some Lifetime movies and they liked the concept and they finally produced it and they were okay with me directing the movie. My goal was to, it fit the formula. Well, there's the sense of humor is, I mean, everything, if you see all my movies, you're going to find a sense Mm -hmm. of humor. I mean, comedy is my forte or whatever and that comes easily. So even all my horror films have a good sense of humor. My thrillers have a good sense of humor just people, the way they talk, the way I write, you know. So there is some some good humor in the movie, but at the same time, I knew you can't you can't do a lot of violence. You know, the, my problem with Lifetime movies, probably your problem, is that I like thrillers. I love Hitchcock. Um, I would love to be doing, you know, Hitchcock-like thrillers. I've written plenty of them. But um, Lifetime is a little more soap opera because it's aimed at women, and they don't really care about a car chase or a big Dario Argento murder sequence or, you know, anything too violent or, you know, uh, stuff like that. So they wanted very talkative. So there's too much talking mm-hmm. in these movies, in my, in my opinion. But um, in terms of the violence, <clears throat> I said, well, I can't show much, but if I go into the psychological character a little bit, I can hint at something a little more disturbing. I was actually surprised what we got away with in terms of that, because if you see the movie, you know, there's a whole thing that he might be sleep, you know, slept with his mother and killed his own father. There's a very Norman Bates element <laughs> yeah. to that movie. Um, that's a little, a little weird, freaky. Uh, uh, and I was happy to get away with that. And then my other thing was I really wanted visually to make the films. I felt that so many of these movies are shot like, you know, when they made TV movies back in the late seventies and eighties, Spielberg with duel and all these movies, mm-hmm. there was a style to these films. The mo- those movies hold up. If you look at, um, you know, dying room only, I don't know if you ever saw that one. It's uh, If you ever saw a breakdown with Kurt Russell, watch the Iron Room only and see if where he got the idea from. Very yeah. similar. <laughs> um, uh, but they, they, these movies had a, had, a, had a good style to them. So I felt, you know, we could do more with the camera. So I got the Steadicam in there. We were doing drone shots. And I really tried, especially at the end, there's a real visual flair with movement and camera and, and motion that you don't usually get on this. And when we were shooting this, because we we shot this during the winter, like just before Christmas um, holidays. And this is supposed to be like a summer, you know, everyone's by the pool and in bikinis. And it was rainy and it was freezing. We were faking the sunlight. And in the first day it was pouring. So we had to shoot like the end of the movie where they're running through the house, <clears throat> you know, rather than the outside stuff. And the ending was a pretty big chase through the house, up into the bedroom, into the bathroom and all that stuff. And, you know, in, in, um, 
running time in the movie, uh, you know, uh, 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 pages of the screenplay, it's only like three or four pages. And in these movies, because we shot this movie in 12 days, we're supposed to be shooting like, you know, eight, nine pages a day. So they're like, you're taking too long. And I'm like, well, at the end of the movie, action takes longer to do. And they're like, you know, it's the end of the movie. He goes, yeah, but we don't care about that. And it's like, what do you mean? He said, he said, look, when these movies are on television, you know, there's, a, there's, the, there's the nine act structure. By the seventh act, if the audience is still watching it, you know, they have them in the, and they don't, the, the, um, the Nelson ratings doesn't follow the reports at that point. So that's why all these movies just sort of end. You don't have to do a good ending because no one cares at that point because you already got the ratings, which is really because in a movie, you know, the whole the ending is the whole. I mean, yo, you know, take out the ending of Home Alone. What do you have? There's no movie. <laughs> you know, it's like it's all the ending. So I'm like, well, that's depressing. But I understand why they why the endings are so lousy, because they're like, we don't need we don't we don't need to spend any money to do that. <clears throat> so it's it's been a yeah, it's, it's yeah, I, I can get away with certain things, but um you know, I, I do feel like your hands are tied when you're doing a Lifetime movie. Obviously, you can't mm -hmm. make it too sexual. You can't make it too violent. You can't make it too exciting. You can't make it too scary because uh, a lot of these films in Europe are shown like in the afternoon. So they actually say you have to uh, you have to you have to make this film bright. It can't be too dark because it's the afternoon. And if the TV is there's light coming into the windows, they won't be able to see it. So if it's a dark movie, we don't like that. And these show at two o'clock in the afternoon. So kids get home from school. So you got to imagine the mother, you know, with the child running around the living room. So there can't be anything too that would disturb the mother for the international sale. So you're really uh, dealing with so many limitations on these things. You know, it's, it's amazing. You can do anything. Um, but I do like thrillers. So, uh, and it looks like my next movie at, as of today is going to be another uh, lifetime film uh, called uh, Psycho Soccer Mom. Oh, okay. Well, that sounds <laughs> which amazing. I, which I wrote and I, I hopefully will be directing, you know. Um, yeah. And it's, 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 again, it's, it's, it's by the numbers, but I, I try to give the characters and some more fun and a little bit of a mystery element to that one, you know. Well, so. um, I think watching like your films, you have a, a real penchant for the female form. Uh, one thing I did um, uh, appreciate with Pool Boy Nightmare was there was a bit, bit of eye candy for the rest of us as well <laughs> with the lead so um good work on that and if you want to put some uh sexy guys in uh the soccer mom movie um i'll be oh, yeah, for yeah. it well I, I had the guy in there too i mean the, the, you know they wanted to shoot him yeah it's the uh, tanner who plays uh, the pool boy yeah no yeah. well there's the thing with with uh with funny you say that because even if you're shooting erotic i mean if you're doing adult films <clears throat> a lot of times they don't look right. They, they overlight it. They don't make the women look pretty. You see all of the, I mean, to shoot a, a woman looking beautiful takes work. You have to, you know, there's a lot of things you have to avoid in there. You know, mm -hmm. I, I said when I, I did that uh, last Emmanuel, I don't know if you saw any of uh, Emmanuel through time, which is a, uh. there's a full out musical. I did, I did a full out throwback to the late seventies <laughs> musical Emmanuel called, uh, it was released here as adventures into the woods it was also called Emmanuel in Wonderland. And uh, there's like 12 songs singing and dancing. It's it's crazy. But the actress who was playing Emmanuel on, on those movies, uh, was it was an adult actress. She's done a lot of adult films. And she's a, and she's a pretty girl, but she has like, you know, uh, she, she, you know, she had her appendix taken out and she has a scar. She has a tattoo that we had to cover up every time. She had, I mean, there's all this stuff that you have to work around to make mm -hmm. them look beautiful. So I was told by a few people that, you know, that not only do I shoot, but I shoot them well. It's like usually yeah. the women are attractive. You make them look beautiful in the movie. And 
they're not shot in such a leering way as much as some other things. So Jacqueline Hyde, like I said here, when the film came out, people had problems with it because they didn't know if it was, they thought the horror crowd thought it was too sexy, you know, and the sexy crowd thought it was too much of a horror film. But we showed the film in the Brussels Film Festival, and in Brussels, they loved the film. They were surprised it was shot by an American because it had a European flavor to it. It wasn't just close-up of boobs, you know. Um, and, uh, and I've gotten that a lot in, in the international that people, you know, like the way I, I shoot the women. And I managed to make it funny while being sexy, while not being offensive or tasteless. You know, even there's nothing out there. One of my first compliments were it was the – it was the most tasteful, tasteless film I've ever seen. <laughs> so, <laughs> yay, <laughs> I got that. So your next film um, is a straight-out body swap comedy, I'm With Me. Um, I've only seen the trailer so far, but I'm getting shades of, like, the Ellen Barkin film Switch, maybe Guy Pierce's film Dating the Enemy. Were there any, like, specific swap films that you drew upon when you were writing and making that sure. film? Sure. So, so this is a script. This is a script that I, did, I didn't direct it. I wrote the script. Um, it was an Italian producer I've been working with doing these romantic comedies for, and, and she gave me the premise of uh, she wanted to have a couple, interracial couple, a black man, white woman, that uh, switch bodies. That was pretty much it. And... But I knew that she was going for kind of a hallmarky romantic comedy. So I said, okay, they don't mm-hmm. want to get into racial issues or, you know, I mean, it's, this is television, you know, hallmark material. Mm-hmm. So I, I came up with the title, I'm With Me. And I went back and I, I did, I mean, I, I had seen them all, but it's more a Freaky Friday, um, you know, both versions, uh, you know, 18 mm-hmm. again, uh, vice versa, like Father, like Son, all the 80s body swap mm-hmm. movies. I sort of looked at those, but making it a, a married, a, a couple about, so it's a, po- a couple about to get married a week before their wedding that mm-hmm. this happens. And usually it's like, you know, a father, son, or a mother, daughter relationship, which is different dynamics, but a, a husband and wife swapping bodies, learning how the other side lives. So yes, mm-hmm. elements of Twitch and, and those things, but um, I, I, it's different material and different jokes. So I, well, I had a fun time writing it. and the actors are great. They did a fantastic job with it. It was, I was, it's one of my favorite movies that I've written and haven't directed that I just thought the director, um, he's a Bulgarian director. He's done all these mm-hmm. that I've written, uh, did a fantastic job with it. So um, it's, 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 it's smart and funny. And it even goes to like, okay, so the, the, the tradition of all the body comedy, special movies is when they wake up in the morning and in the trailer, it looks like that where they see each other and they scream. Mm-hmm. Right. In this movie, again, my influences. They wake up separately. They go into the bathroom, and there's a uh, the bathroom has a, a glass door. It's a it's a it's a it's a mirror door on the on the bathroom door, mm-hmm. and the mirror door opens up, and they both walk up to it and look at each other the next morning, thinking they're seeing themselves reflected, and then mm-hmm. they re- lean in at the same time, <laughs> look at their teeth. They raise their yeah, they do so. It, it's it's the Marx Brothers <laughs> duck soup yeah. routine yeah. before they touch out. They reach for the doorknob and they touch hands, and then they realize. They're each other person, then they scream. But I thought that was yeah. a great way to. I'm kind of saying, how can I do a, a new take on that? And that was a great yeah. old throwback to uh, March Brothers. That was a lot of fun. So I really, really tried to figure out how to reinvent the the, the traditions of those movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll we'll definitely appreciate that. Um, we've been doing this show for six years and watched like ninety of these movies. So we've seen these <laughs> tropes over and over and over again. And you'd be surprised because they keep making these kind of movies. How 
little effort there is to reinvent these tropes, how happy people are to just trot them out over and over again. So, yeah. um, so yeah, I, that... I, I worked on it. There, I think there's, there's an, there's, there's more of a, of a dialogue intellectual comedy in this movie, I think, than you usually find in these movies. I mean, it deals mm-hmm. a little because, because the, the guy is a psychiatrist, a therapist, and the woman is uh, the head uh, uh, editor of a, like, um, National Enquirer gossip magazine. So mm-hmm. my whole thing was is that he listens for a living and she kind of talks and spreads lies and rumors for a living. And then when they get inside these side of shoes, they really see how the other one is and they become better people and a better couple. So it, it, <laughs> it, it, it does have a, a point to it. Um, but I found interesting dynamics within the structure of that script when I wrote it. And uh, I, I hope it comes out soon. I mean, it, it, they, yeah, that whole slate of romantic comedies I wrote during COVID these all happened in 2020 when I wrote them. Um, it turned out really well. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, they haven't gotten big play. I think in Europe, they've played more than here. It's been like Amazon Prime has a few of them streaming and things like that. But they're, they're cute. And it was something different than I had done in the past. So do you know, have any idea about the distribution plans for I Am Not yet. She said she has some news, the producer coming up. So I'm hoping she tells me. I mean, there's there's that one. And, and there's a, it's not body swapping, but for better or worse, which is uh, – Another version of uh, the Money Pit, which is another version of Mr. Blandy's Bill's Dream House with Cary Grant, which you know. <laughs> so um, I, I had fun writing that one too, with a couple that's getting divorced and and have to fix up the house that's falling apart and like fix up their lives. Um, that one turned out really well, also. So it's it, yeah, it's different from from some stuff, but starting with horror comedy and then moving into family and then the uh, erotic comedies and then back to Lifetime films and talking animal movies and you know. Yeah. <laughs> so if somebody was to give you a blank slate tomorrow, say you can make whatever you want to do, what would it be? Yeah, that's always hard because I have I have I have my my pet project scripts that I love that I've been wanting to direct forever. I have one uh, based on Edgar Allan Poe. It's a modern Poe um, taking five of his tales and interweaving them into one fresh story. It's not an anthology. It's one story <laughs> called Nevermore. I'm sure the title will change because there have been too many Nevermores. But um that's one. I have a, a script called Just Listen, which is Rear Window meets uh, Repulsion meets The Conversation, a female-driven movie. That um, That's one that they keep saying, you know, could be a Lifetime movie, but I'm like, it's too dark. And the end, I don't want to put it into a Lifetime. I think it's a, it's a more interesting film than if it turns into a Lifetime film. I think there's more edge to it. It would have to mm-hmm. be toned down too much to do it well. And I have Annalyn McCord attached to that one because I met her on the set of the first Lifetime movie. Yeah. Uh, then I've got one, but a great love letter to the horror genre. One's called uh, Horror Fest, and it's um, a movie theater reopens. They show an interactive horror movie where the audience decides where the movie's going through their cell phones, which is something mm-hmm. I actually worked on years and years ago that they tried to do that wasn't a failure. That was a failure. And people get sucked into the movie a little bit like The Final Girls. But now the audience is deciding the fate of the real people in the movie through the cell phones <laughs> while the criticisms are being done by like critics outside the movie. It's a, it's a great, um, it, it hits a lot of issues there. So it, it's a comedy horror. It's a really fun script. I, I, that one, that one's a, a really fun one I like to do. And uh, I, well, <laughs> I, I don't, I, I've written, I mean, I started young, but I've written now 193 screenplays. Wow. 87 have been produced, <laughs> which is pretty good. And I've got about 50 of them in my arsenal, you know, so depending on 
day of the week or whatever. It's like, well, I, you know, what do you look, I'd love to do this. I'd love to do that. So I'm, I'm open. I'd love to do a, a real full out musical because that Emmanuel musical was like a test run to see if I could do one on like no time and no money. And I was, it's crazy. You know, it's, uh, I don't know if you ever saw the old, like Charlie band produced one called Cinderella way back in the day with Cheryl Smith. And uh, there was Alice in Wonderland, which was an X-rated or, you know, version. But I said, no one really done a, uh, uh, that 70s, you know, sexy musical comedy. You know, First New Musical was a great film and uh, you know, things like that. So, <laughs> uh, so that was fun to do. But um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I've got my Hitchcock thrillers. I've got, you know, my, my, uh, my horror stuff, my comedies. Well, I think I can speak for all of us. We're, we'll definitely be watching your career with a close lens from now on. Um, and uh, yeah, definitely looking forward to I Am Me first off. Like, I'm with me, sorry. Um, yeah. we'll, we'll be definitely covering be that. On the podcast. Yep. That will definitely be covering that one. Um, okay. So, you know, if you make keep making body swap films, you know you've got a dedicated audience here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, thank you so much uh, for coming on our show today, uh, yeah. Rolf. Um, where can people follow you on the internet and follow what you're doing? Sure. Well, okay, so most recently thing. Um, so I'm on Facebook, uh, so you can find me, Rolf Konevsky. Um, uh, that's probably the best way to follow me. I'm on the IMBD too, so contacts mm-hmm. are there. You know, I, I pretty much – independent filmmaker living in Los Angeles from New York originally. And uh, this year, uh, actually two days ago, uh, yesterday, uh, Nightmare Man, one of my movies came out on Blu-ray. It's on Amazon Prime now, just got released on Mm -hmm. Blu-ray through Ronin Flicks. They're also going to be putting out There's Nothing Out There, I think in in June, with maybe a lot of my home movies and lots of extra Mm -hmm. bonuses, new commentary tracks, and that's going to be cool. And, And then The Hazing, which is one of my favorite films, um, uh, which has a lot of possession in it. Brad Dorf mm-hmm. possesses the bodies of Tiffany Shepes and some other people. Um, that's hopefully coming out around Halloween time as its own release. And I just signed with a, a foreign uh, rep, a Canadian rep, who's going to be trying to sell the films internationally. So I'm hoping, you know, at the Brussels, uh, Berlin Film Festival, they're going to start marketing these things to get my older films out there again. Um, and one in the gun, maybe too, my film noir movie that, uh, I did years ago that might be coming out. So, so it's an interesting retrospective of my older stuff. Soundtracks are coming out for the first time. There's going to be a nothing out there soundtrack and nightmare man comes out in February and the hazing will be out in December too. So it's interesting, you know, people are like discovering my older films, um, which is fun, but I want to make new stuff too. So <laughs> I'm hoping that my, <laughs> my, my slate of uh, future things, you know, comes together. Um, I have to a, ask, is there, is there a tension to release pretty cool on Blu-ray at any point? Pretty cool. I, I would love to. Um, I, I've, I've, I have a Blu-ray that I've up from a DigiBeta. The problem with the, right now with these movies is that um, this, Alon Saritsky, who produced all these films I worked with on and off for 16, 17 years, passed away years ago his company is sort of in flux and a lot of the films got tied up with international legalities and things. So no one's really handling the films. The, the companies aren't really around anymore. My, my, my favorite film tomorrow by midnight, I'm trying to see if I can get that one out there because that we shot on 35 millimeter anamorphic. It's a really good film. It's not a body spot movie, but um, we got, you know, Carol Kane, Alexis Arquette, uh, Jorge Garcia from lost. It's a really good cast. 
and been pretty cool was done right after that and i i really uh, would love that one to get out there too it was pretty cool too you know i mean that would be they'd be fun together mm-hmm. the, the, the and i did write a pretty cool three um actually that never got made called uh time twister um mm-hmm. which uh, dealt more with time travel and the, the loop it was kind of like uh American Pie meets Groundhog Day. You know, what would happen if you could fix the worst day of your life in college? Um, so it was, again, a standalone sequel, but using the pretty cool, like, because I thought all three movies are slightly connected, but could stand by themselves. Um, mm-hmm. And that would be fun because that would be the first one that I could do as its own movie with like a tough time to prep it because uh, Pretty Cool was always, uh, you know, this mishmash. Pretty Cool 2 was literally happened on the fly because people said pretty cool one did so well <clears throat> I, don't, I didn't tell you that but so when pretty cool finally came out it, it got turned down by blockbuster but hollywood video out here picked it up which was a decent chain at the time and it started renting and the numbers came in and they were like ignore the numbers on pretty cool because there must have been a machine a mistake with the machine because they was renting as well as the a-list titles and they didn't understand it. And they were like, it was word of mouth. It was a pure word of mouth thing that the film was doing like National Lampoon titles mm-hmm. and doing better. And that's when the, the, the MTI who released the film came to Sarisky and said, this is wound up doing great. They said we would do it. We would happily release it pretty cool too. So he announced it. And like a month later, we were shooting this movie and I was literally writing the script as we were auditioning actors. It happened really fast. So I said, if we ever do a third one, at least uh, let me write a good script as it's by itself rather than just being at the mercy of you know all the other things and that's <laughs> how that happened but yeah so it, it's it's interesting and pretty cool i'm happy that some people still discovered it and that it's been able to stand the test of time like these other movies so i i really hope because pretty cool was shot in 35 millimeter i mean we didn't finish on answer print but we did finish we did you know it was a film it was actually shot on film and um nobody became a huge star but i, I think people would, would still enjoy the film today and you know I, I would, I would, I would be happy to do another one. At least I got to do one after hormones never got made. It, it was nice to finally get to do a, a nice '80s throwback <laughs> to that. You know? Yeah. Well, we're very glad you did. Thanks. Um, so, yeah, thank you again for being on our show. Hopefully, see many of your films in the future. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm glad you guys like it. The Swellcast podcast is recorded in Adelaide, Australia. It's hosted by Paul Mitzi and edited by Brendan Levi and Paul Mitzi. Our theme song was written and performed by John Marco of Two Creative, featuring Lucy Thomas, and recorded at Browntown Studios. Our music bumpers were created by Reggie Parker. Contact him on parkerregmusic at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.